Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Aviva Ram is both a midwife and an internal medicine and board-certified family physician with specialties in integrative gynecology with a focus on women's endocrinology. She's also a world-renowned herbalist, best-selling author, and her latest must-read is titled Hormone Intelligence. The Complete Guide to Calming Hormone Chaos and Restoring Your Body's Natural Blueprint for Well-Being. It's an honor to have her back on the show today. Aviva, welcome. Jason, thank you for having me on the show again. So great to be here with you. So great to have you. Congrats on the book. It's a big book. It's an important book. And why is it big and why is it important? As, as you say, there's a hidden hormone epidemic. And so let's start there. What are we still getting so wrong about women's hormones? Oh, wow. Boy, that's a jack-in-the-box question, isn't it? Well, I think the first thing is that when we define women's, when we define a hormone across the board, if someone were to say to a doctor, a scientist, some maybe even someone on the street who's studied a little, what's a hormone? We know that it's a chemical messenger. And so I jokingly say we've been shooting the messenger. We look at women's gynecologic issues, but also emotions, mood changes, cyclic changes. And what do we say? Are you hormonal? Are you on your period? We tend to blame hormones, but we're shooting the messenger instead of saying these are super sensitive biochemical agents that we have in our body that are constantly in flux, constantly responding to the environment that we live in, constantly responding to our internal environment. So maybe we should be listening to what they're saying instead of blaming them when things go wrong. So instead of saying, oh, she's hormonal, or am I hormonal, or I must just be hormonal, when it means we're saying something's out of balance, whether that's PMS or perimenopause or pregnancy things that are coming up, emotional or physical, what do they really mean? And I feel like that's what we've been getting so, so very wrong. As part of that, we are not paying attention to the fact that these hormonal imbalances are messengers, that something is very wrong in our environment. Why is it that you mentioned the hidden hormone epidemic? Why is it that women are really quite en masse experiencing so many hormonal and gynecologic problems, right? Like one in six women's going to have a fertility consultation. One in eight has PCOS, one in 10 endometriosis, half of all women over 60 are going to have a hysterectomy. I mean, the statistics are staggering. And then you add on the number of women who are on the pill, for example, not for contraception, but for hormonal symptoms. And then the number of women who are on hormone replacement therapy at a different phase of life in perimenopause and menopause for hormone symptoms. So what are we missing? What are they telling us that we're not listening to? So you mentioned the pill, the birth control pill, you mentioned menopause, and we're talking a broad age group of women, and we've got a broad Mm -hmm. audience. And so can you, let's speak to each age group. So let's take someone in their 20s, then the 30s group, the 40s group, the 50s group, and then we'll say 60s plus for all of our octogenarians out there, you're 60s, 70s, 80s plus. We hear you, but we're lumping in you into 60s plus. I hope you're okay with that. So for each of these age groups, there are issues with regards to hormones, but each group is different. And there is some there there are some commonalities, but there are a lot of differences. So can we spend a little bit of time and go, And we'll start with the 20s and talk about that group. And what are the key things that someone in their 20s should be 
aware of when it comes to their hormone health. I love it. Yes, this is a great worldview. So if I may, I will just say that we have to start paying attention when young women are in their teens, because that's often 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, when someone is going to get started on the pill for what may be normal cyclic irregularity, or it may be early signs of something like endometriosis or PCOS. So we often say, oh, teenagers, it's normal for them to gain a little weight and have some acne and feel depressed and binge eat on sugar. And yes, it may for some, but those are all four big symptoms that somebody could have polycystic ovary syndrome. Similarly, oh, it's normal to be a teenager and have a period pain, but you haven't gotten your period for that long. It's still figuring itself out. So just take ibuprofen and it may be normal, but it may be early endometriosis. So the earlier we can catch these things, actually, we're setting ourselves up for decade after decade of health. By the time we're in our 20s, normally, if your body is kind of in in harmony with its innate hormonal blueprint, if you will, to wax a little romantically, but we really do have one, by then, ideally, our hormones are settling out. They're kind of a nice hum. Our cycles are regular. The acne is better. We're feeling pretty comfortable in our sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. But like, if I could do a sound of like, what is it, the old sound of the record screeching to a halt? Like, not so much because so many women during that age range are experiencing a lot of hormone problems. And we tend to just chalk them up to normal because, hey, we're women and we have all these symptoms and it just kind of sucks, but it's par for the course. You go to your doctor, your doctor says, yeah, it's pretty normal to have irregular periods or you know, who loves their period anyway? You're not going to sing Kumbaya, right? So just take some ibuprofen or again, take the pill. But what we know about hormonal imbalances in our teens and 20s, those actually set us up for bigger problems in our 40s and 50s and 60s, especially things like chronic pelvic pain or chronic inflammation or blood sugar imbalances that these can be telling us about. So I really encourage women, and I'm not against the pill. I'm not against taking ibuprofen when you need it. They're amazing if you need them. But if you're in your 20s and you're struggling with any of these symptoms I'm mentioning, troublesome acne, migraines, anything that smacks hormone imbalance or gynecologic symptom, it's such an important time to use this as an opportunity because it really is an opportunity. Someone said to me the other day, men don't really get that cyclic monthly opportunity that's like a red flag, kind of a red light kind of blinking, something's up. And we do get that. So paying attention and using this as a time to nourish yourself with your diet, make sure your microbiome is healthy, and consider finding ways to really listen to your body, live in harmony with what your cycles are telling you, what your moods are throughout your cycles, what foods you crave, what clothing you choose to wear, who you choose to hang out with, what your creative ebbs and flows are. It's a really beautiful time to start to pay attention to that. And even just doing that can start to help you be more self-aware and live a more kind of hormonally balanced life. If you hit your 30s and you're still struggling with these symptoms, absolutely, you want to start to dial into what, you know, what's really going on. And often it's late 20s, early 30s that women start to have or notice that they have hormone imbalances because it comes up through fertility problems. So one of the things that I see in my practice all the time is women who got put on the pill, they're 16, heavy periods, irregular periods, whatnot. Now they're 32, coming off the pill, so excited to get pregnant. And again, screeching halt, 
discover that they're not getting pregnant in three months or six months or 12 months, and maybe have now found out that really there was a suppressed hormone problem the whole time. So thinking ahead to fertility in our 20s, early 30s, again, don't just, again, I'm not, I don't want to vilify the pill, but don't just assume that's the answer. If it's suppressing your hormone problems, they're going to come up most likely later. In our 30s, I think we start to get more comfortable in, our, in ourselves in general. We're kind of settling, hopefully, into some sense of our purpose and our work. So again, ideally, this should be an easier time in our lives, a time when we're experiencing more comfort. So if you're not, then check in on what's going on. We know that tw- people in their 20s right now are having less sex than previous generations, like the last three generations in their 20s. And so also if you're having sexual health challenges, pain with sex, but also just low libido, or you're not in a relationship that's satisfying. So one of the big reasons we know that 20-somethings are having less sex is they're actually on their devices way more at night and not connecting with each other. But it's a really important time to start to tap into your sexual health also, in my opinion, and get comfortable with what you like, get comfortable with taking care of your own pleasure if you don't have a partner to experience pleasure with. But that can be really helpful too for things like pelvic pain, period pain, to bring relief. It's a really important time, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, to be really mindful of sexual health protection because you can get any kinds of sexual, sexually transmitted infections at any age and they're on the rise. So I just want to put in a plug for condoms and being aware and asking the questions of our partners and getting tested when appropriate. And honestly, I hear women in their 50s and 60s getting into new relationships saying, oh, I don't need to because I can't get pregnant, but you can still get other stuff. So late 30s for some women and then early mid 40s, early to mid 40s for other women, some women late 40s, we start to experience a shift in our cycles because we're experiencing a shift in our hormones. So as we grow up and as we get older, our estrogen ultimately starts to decline. The number of ovums, the eggs in our ovaries that we're born with, like hundreds of thousands, dwindle down. And it's a really great time to honor that you are going through changes. You might notice some changes in the frequency of your periods. Again, how you feel throughout the month may start to shift. I find that a lot of women as we get into our 40s and 50s also feel a lot more comfort speaking up for ourselves. It's something wonderful to embrace in your 20s and 30s, but there's a deeper empowerment that starts to happen with those lived years of experience that's really beautiful to honor. And it's a really important time throughout all of our life cycles, but especially now, to make sure that we're paying attention to like what's called oxidative damage essentially cellular damage that happens as we're not getting enough nutrition, but also as the wear and tear of the exposures we've had on our life starts to affect our tissues. So nourishing yourself with really rich um, antioxidant rich foods like berries, greens, super important for our whole life cycle, but then becomes very important in those years nourishing our ovaries. There are some wonderful ways to do that with diet, eating seeds, really helpful through all of our life cycles, flax seeds, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, those nourish our ovaries. Vitamin C rich foods, citrus, for example, if you tolerate and love citrus is a great 
way to nourish your ovaries. So those are some of the things. What am I skipping here? 50s, menopause definitely happens for most women. Early 50s, age 52 is the international average age. And for some women, we just transition right into it. But for a lot of women, like puberty or like pregnancy, there are big hormonal shifts that happen, just major Titanic level, earthquake kind of level hormonal changes that can really can really alter how you feel in your body. Your body can maybe change shape a little bit. We put on weight around our middle, around a little bit on our hips a little bit as estrogen changes, more prone to inflammation as estrogen changes. So in our 50s is an important time to be mindful of, again, always throughout our life cycles, but healthful anti-inflammatory diet, supplements that may support the transition, better sleep becomes challenging sometimes as estrogen and progesterone go down. So supplements that can support sleep, some of them also support ovarian health, which is interesting, like melatonin. And then once you get into your mid-50s, for most women, the hormonal ups and downs actually settle into a nice hum again, kind of like in the 20s and 30s, you get this nice hum and much fewer upheavals. So I think as women, we're not just our hormones, but our hormones shape so much of the arc of our life to learn to recognize the different voices of the different hormones. Oh, this feels like I've got more estrogen or progesterone going on, or kind of feeling the testosterone here with my creativity and my energy and my sex drive can really help you identify when you're in balance, but also help you identify when things are getting a little bit off track, which is really common. And learning to embrace the shifts because we're like the tides, we're like the moon, we change. And I think when we resist that, it makes those changes harder. Also, we don't live in a culture that necessarily supports those changes. So puberty, we treat teenage girls like they're irrational. Women who are going through PMS, we treat women with PMS like they're irrational. Pregnant women, we make fun of all the crazy emotions. Then when we go into menopause, what's what's the thing? We wouldn't want a woman in menopause as present because who would president because who would want her finger on the button? Like we have all these external ideas that I think if we can reframe them for ourselves and recognize that we don't live in a culture that fully honors that cyclicity and those changes and those ebbs and flows, it can be really hard. But if you can recognize it for yourself, it can make it more exciting and interesting and beautiful. And so what about 60 plus? 60 plus. So so each life cycle and each decade sets the tone for the next decade. So the biggest concerns that we start to see in women 60s and plus are heart, bone, and brain. So if we're in our 20s and 30s and our 40s and our 50s, and we're nourishing our bones with good physical movement, calcium-rich foods, doesn't have to be dairy, but just sesame seeds and all kinds of greens, all kinds of wonderful foods that are high in calcium. If we're getting good sleep, because cortisol can really affect our, not just stress and our sleep, but in turn affect our cardiovascular health, our cognitive function, all of these things set the tone for an easier time in our in our 60s and beyond. For me, I'm turning 55 actually in a month, and I find myself really looking to the women matriarchs, the Helen Mirrens, the Yoko Onos, the there's so many women come to my mind who are just these Betty, Betty White. White. Who doesn't love Betty White? Betty White is how old? I think she she is like 92 or something like that. And also the women in their 50s, whether it's Michelle Obama or Halle Berry or Jada Pinkett Smith or Salma Hayek or Nicole Kidman. I mean, I think it's easy to forget these Jennifer Aniston. These women are now in their 
in their 50s and they are smoking hot, smart, successful, outspoken, crushing it to embrace that. I think because I think the biggest thing that is harder as we get older is this marginalization that happens. And it it even happens to some extent in the wellness world, right? There's this emphasis on young yogic wellness space that often emphasizes a certain age range and appearance that it can feel easier as we get older to feel marginalized out of that or not have as much value physically or reproductively. But to look at women who are just crushing, I actually was jokingly saying to my husband the other day, if I were to write a next book ever, it would be my period may be over, but I'm just getting started, (laughs) like reframing. And yeah, but I think it's so important to remember each year builds on the next, each decade builds on the next. So the health we have in our 60s, is what we were doing in our 40s and our 30s and our 20s. So being mindful of that. So there, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm going to come back to the pill. You said you don't want to vilify mm-hmm. the pill, but we, we have to talk about the pill. Let's I don't know if you know. Pill. I don't know if you know this, but so Colleen had a my wife Colleen had a pulmonary embolism nine years ago, and she was on the birth control pill, and it was I did not know that. Yeah, it happened after. It was almost a week after, not a longish flight, but a flight. We didn't really move much. Mm-hmm. And it turned out she had a pulmonary embolism and she had blood clots in her lungs and very lucky she sur- survived. And she wrote a post on Mind Buddy Green about it. And this is going back to 2012, back when we had Facebook comments and people actually like, when there was real discussion before it just went to crap and then we just killed comments and that's probably <laughs> But I'll never forget, she, she wrote the post about her experience and was convinced because Colleen's very healthy. It was convinced that there was a link with the, the pill. And I'll never forget like the outpouring. There were hundreds of comments of yeah. women, some strangers, some she knew who had also had blood clots and were convinced. Yeah. And I was just like, we were both said, holy cow. And so look, without, we don't want to build the, the <laughs> There's a lot of good, but no, the I feel also. you, Jason. I feel but, you. I mean, look, I, we have to like discuss it because I don't think a, a lot of and she what Colleen went on the pill and you know, teen, teenager acne, all the things why girls go on the pill, and not to say that's wrong, but she was also on I forget which form it was that clotting was a little bit yeah. more prevalent. Yeah, it's probably so. We just have to talk about the pill for a minute. Yeah. So when I say I don't want to vilify the pill, one, I don't want women who feel like they need to be on it, whether it's for horrible cystic acne that's making their life miserable, or they're just in a situation where they don't have the bandwidth to track their cycle or don't, or they don't have regular cycles and they can't track their cycles and they're using it for contraception. But it is a huge problem. I mean, one, I've had the same experience. We just posted recently again about the pill. It's like, I can never post enough about the pill. And the same thing I did, what I wish I knew about the pill. We've been doing this, what I wish I knew series about various women's health issues. And what I wish I knew about the pill, quite a number of women said the same thing. I wish I knew this before I had that blood clot, or I wish I knew this before my blood pressure went through the roof, or I wish I knew this before I developed severe depression that I then got put on medications that then caused this and this problem for it's a huge problem. And I think there's several problems going on. One is that there has been so little innovation in contraception for women or men. In fact, there was, you know, the few studies that have been done using hormonal contraception in men have been canceled before they've even been seen all the way through because the men can't stand the hormone, the symptoms and side effects. This is for real. There's been so little innovation. And I think the biggest thing is so little transparency. A woman 
Colleen, any woman could go to her doctor and say, look, I had these blood clots. I don't want to do this hormonal medication and literally be told, oh, it could have nothing. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the pill. We know this is a major side effect. We also know that doctors are not taking the time. I can tell you seven years of medical education, including five of those at Yale, there was never one moment, never one class, never one anything where somebody said, before you put someone on the pill, make sure you ask about history of migraines. Make sure you ask about this risk factor, smoking, age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Never. We're just taught to fill out the prescription. Obviously, I had a different background, so that wasn't how I practiced ever, but it's pretty endemic. So we're not, you know, I believe women should have the choice. And if they want to take the pill or need to take the pill, absolutely. But somebody needs to say, hey, by the way, do you really know there are these risks? They're real. They're not just like some random person over there. They can happen to people we know. They can happen to you. And do you know the options that are the alternatives? And do you know what to look for in case one of these risks is happening to you? And that is just so missing. It makes me so, so mad because of course, the stories like Colleen, I mean, she had a good ending ultimately with this, but a lot of women don't. And that's really scary. And it's not just the pill, it's the Nuva ring is another one that has been associated with clots and, and deaths in women. So I really encourage, I, I never have taken the pill. I started getting into the wellness understanding and understanding my body when I was 15. And even back then, understanding the risks of it, it just wasn't something I felt comfortable with. And really encourage women if they have other ways of taking care of their hormone imbalances, because 60% of women taking the pill are not taking it for contraception. They're put on it for a hormone problem. So, I mean, that's another thing. Just take that, the post I posted recently on social was, just take the pill is something your doctor should say to you, never. They should say, <laughs> here's, here's an, the pill is one of many options for contraception. It's one of many options for your hormone problem. Let's look at all the others. Let's start with the ones that are safer and gentler. And then if we're going to use the pill, let's make sure that we know your risks and get you on the right kind that is the lowest risk for you. So yes, I could, I could rant about the pill. And then women aren't also told some of the basic stuff. Like, I mean, the clotting is a very severe thing, but a big study out of Denmark just a few years ago showed that something like 20% of young women who were put on the pill who had no depression before developed depression severe enough that going on the pill warranted them going on an antidepressant medication. And some people, a smaller subset of people experience severe depression or suicidal level depression. So we don't talk about that. Women know going on the pill. So many women say it makes me feel crazy. But for some women, that is, it's a really big impact that can affect their well-being in a serious way. Even on a more basic level, we don't talk about the nutrients that get depleted when women are on the pill. So the B complex, the magnesium, the vitamin D that women should be taking to replete those levels so that they can stay optimally healthy while they're on the pill. And then nobody, I mean, I just, I cannot tell you in, in all these years of being a physician and a midwife, I have never heard of an encounter where a woman who's been on the pill for however many years goes back to her doctor and the doctor says, hey, I noticed you've been on the pill for 10 years. Do you still need it? Right. If she was put on it for a hormone imbalance, nobody puts a teenager on the pill and says, let's check back in a year or two or five or 15. It's just like you're put on it and you're expected to stay on it until 
you decide what you're going to get pregnant or you don't need it anymore. So, so many levels of wrong happening there. So uh, on the subject of pills, we, we also mentioned sleep and there's a magic pill, melatonin. And melatonin is a sleep aid and yep. melatonin works as a sleep aid, but it also has a direct impact on hormones. And there are a lot of opinions with regards to dosage and where you potentially cross a line if you're a woman with mm -hmm. hormones and melatonin. So what's your take on melatonin and dosage as a sleep aid as it relates to hormones? Yeah. So first of all, melatonin is just an incredibly cool hormone that we produce in our brains. And we think of melatonin as the sleep hormone, but it's actually so much more. It's like calling cortisol the stress hormone. It's so much more. And speaking of, cortisol is like the direct antagonist of melatonin. So we're supposed to have a higher cortisol in the day, then it goes down at night, and then melatonin peaks up and it's infusing our brains overnight. So one of the really cool things about melatonin is that it's detoxifying your brain. It actually is draining your brain of toxins that you accumulate from thinking and things that cross the blood-brain barrier, chemicals, blah, blah, blah. It's detoxifying the brain. So that's really important. Getting good sleep, which requires having enough melatonin being produced by your brain, is critical for thyroid function and hormone function. So we know that unless you're getting that good sleep, your ovaries aren't as optimized, your, your ovulation, your cycles, your fertility, all of it is just not as optimized. And here's one of the really cool things about melatonin that I didn't actually know until just a few years ago. Not that I know everything, but I would have thought I've known this that one of the richest sites of melatonin in the body is the ovaries. And that fertility actually also, because of melatonin, depends on healthy melatonin levels in the brain and in the ovaries. So to your question, ovulation, fertility, we have to have enough melatonin, which we should be able to get by getting good sleep at night. So wearing blue blocker glasses or getting off your electronics at a reasonable time so that you're not having that blue light, stimulating cortisol, blocking melatonin, not having stimulants in the evening, all of that good stuff for sleep hygiene. But what about taking melatonin? So we know that taking melatonin can help really effectively with jet lag prevention. Some people get really great benefits for sleep, some metza metza. And that women who are struggling with ovulation and fertility may get benefit from low doses of melatonin. So when we take melatonin orally, apparently our blood levels go up from anywhere from 10 to 20 times the amount that we would just be naturally producing at that gentle little hum from naturally producing melatonin. But anywhere from like 0.3 to 3 milligrams is a really reasonable window for most people. If I have a patient who is, is going in for fertility treatment, particularly egg stimulation, then I will often say, just to be sure, drop it down to one milligram if you're really benefiting. That 0.3 to one is a really reasonable window to be, dose window to be taking it. Over up to three should be fine. But again, if fertility is more precious for you right now, stay in that lower dose range. For everyone else, really, three mil up to three milligrams, if you tolerate it well, is great. And you don't just have to take it at night, but it's better for your circadian rhythm if you take it in the evening, somewhere around eight to 10 o'clock, like an hour before you go to bed. That seems to help. 
The only concerns that I've read about melatonin in the evening is a really interesting one. Because it starts to kick in your kind of rest and digest mode, if you eat your dinner late, like let's say you eat dinner at 7.30 and then you take your melatonin at eight o'clock, you may not be, you may be quieting your metabolism a little bit. So you may not get as much digestive fire and it may actually affect weight gain just a little bit. So may cause it. So keeping your melatonin a couple of hours after your dinner, if that means you need to bump your dinner a little earlier or take your melatonin a little later, that, that seems to be sort of the antidote for that. It's a really cool hormone. Got it. So for women who are looking to conceive between 0.3 and, and 1, probably mm-hmm. the way to go. And for everyone else, between 1 and 3 is probably fine. But to play yeah, it or safe. Or 0.3. I usually say start low anyway. So I usually say start at 0.3, work your way up over a few nights to 1, see where you find your sweet spot. If it's at 1 milligram, great. If you need to go up to 2, go up to 3. That's fine. But sometimes we don't find our sweet spot because we jump up too fast. Got it. Got it. And there's some people ask me if you take melatonin, will that suppress your natural production of melatonin? And the answer is no, it should not do that. You don't get addicted to it or habituated and it doesn't shut down. You can build a tolerance though. You can build a tolerance, but you don't uh, suppress your own. Right. So we love the microbiome here. You talk about Mm -hmm. the microbiome in the book, but you also talk about the, and I'm going to botch the pronunciation. I think it's the estrobolome. 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 So think like strobolite, a strobolome. Yes. Strobolome. So let's talk about the estrobolome. What is it and why is it critical? Okay, so first of all, we all know if we're hanging out at Mind Body Green that the microbiome is just it's as cool as melatonin, right? It's so fascinating. Every day there's new interesting research and it just drives home how important our connection is to the variety of foods we eat, our connection to the planet and soil and this sort of interactive microorganism thing happening. So it gets even a notch cooler, in my opinion, when you learn that you have an entire branch or department of your microbiome literally dedicated, genetically programmed to maintain estrogen balance. And of course, in women, this is critically important because I would say it's like Goldilocks, too much estrogen, and that's not healthy for you, too little estrogen, that's not healthy for you. So you want your estrogen just right. That that just right is different in the first half of your menstrual cycle, the second half of your menstrual cycle, whether you're pregnant, whether you're in menopause. So the amount and type of estrogen varies, but at those different inflection points and shifts in our life, there's a range that's healthy. If your microbiome is not properly metabolizing your estrogen, one of two things can happen you either eliminate too much, and then that puts you at risk of low estrogen, or your body's not eliminating it adequately, and you reabsorb too much. And then typically, we're reabsorbing a more toxic form that our body was actually trying to get rid of. So if you're eliminating too much, it can have an impact on your mood, your skin health, your hair, your cognitive function, your cardiovascular function. And if you're producing too much then you can have symptoms like heavy bleeding, uterine fibroids, heavy period bleeding is what I meant, breast tenderness, breast lumps and cysts, but also too much estrogen is a big risk factor for blood clotting, ovarian, uh, endometrial cancer, breast cancer, right? So that's sort of some of the risks with the pill when it has estrogen, it causes some of those things. So that a strobolome 
is essential, particularly for women's hormone balance. I'm sure men have it too. I've actually never looked into the male estrobilome, but a huge player for women. So keeping our microbiome healthy and supporting that estrobilome with probiotics, prebiotic foods, lacto-fermented foods, fiber is so important for a healthy estrobilome. Yeah. So on the subject of foods and estrogen, can you talk about mm -hmm. phytoestrogen? Yeah. So phyto means plant and estrogen is a kind of estrogen. Phytoestrogens are a kind of estrogen that plants produce because plants produce hormones for their own purposes, growth and all the things that they need to do to manufacture their nutrition and photosynthesize and all of that. So most plants, the legumes, the greens that we eat, they have nutrients in them that our body can, those phytonutrients are, are sort of phytoestrogens that our body in our microbiome can then take and convert into estrogens in our body. And there's a lot of controversy around phytoestrogens because some people say, well, we shouldn't eat them or supplement with them because we're increasing our estrogen. But actually, when you look at the studies on phytoestrogens, first of all, vegetarians have the healthiest estrogen balance that of all types of diets because they're getting so much fiber and so many legumes and so many vegetables that they're actually excreting out the excess estrogen much more efficiently than most other people. And these estrogens that come from plants actually are milder or gentler in their effect than the estrogens that we're getting from our environment. So the BPA, the BPS, the phthalates that are in everything right now. I mean, they're in inorganic food. They're, they can even be contaminants even in organic dairy because animals store environmental, accumulate environmental herbicides and pesticides in their fat and milk has a lot of fat. They're in the cosmetics that women are using and in enormous amounts, anything with fragrance. So that fragrance you get the hit of when you go into the Uber and you're like, I just can't breathe this stuff. That is all that toxic. It's all toxic phthalates. And the scary thing is like you were saying, you can build a tolerance to melatonin. You actually can build a tolerance to smelling those things. So you, after a while, you just don't even notice that you're bathing yourself in this fragrance that is affecting your endocrine system, your hormones. That's why they're called endocrine disruptors. So the beauty of phytoestrogens and again, just from food, we're not talking about supplementing them, just eating things like lentils and chickpeas and kale and broccoli, just your healthful vegetables and legumes, is they block, just gently block the effects of the environmental estrogens that we're getting exposed to. So you can actually have an overall lower, healthier, I should say, estrogen load than if you're not getting those. The problem comes when people start to kind of super supplement, like, you know how it is, things just go in a craze, right? So like for a while, people were just drinking enormous amounts of soy milk in the 80s and early 90s because it was a popular milk alternative or eating tons of tofu or uh, just overdoing it. And then it became popular to supplement what are called isoflavones, which are extracted phytoestrogens from soy typically. So it's when we overdo it, and also people who overdo it, who have a risk of, or have a history of cancer that is triggered by estrogen, those people can be at risk. But just from every day eating them, they're so important. I mean, if women just could eat some greens and legumes, ideally every day, or at least legumes a few times a week, it'd be so helpful. And I think people have gotten really scared of legumes because of the lectins, but- Gundry, that our friend, Dr. Gundry. I love yes. him, but he, he doesn't, he's not a fan of lectins and that's okay. 
Yeah, he's not very lucky, <laughs> but you know that's not really what science or history shows us. So if you're soaking and cooking your legumes, if you're steaming your greens, if you're cooking your grains well, they really should not be a problem. And again, if we're looking at just studies on people who eat legumes, if you look at like Dan Buettner's work at the Blue Zones, all those people eat legumes in their diet. And if you just look at scientific studies on including legumes in your diet, better blood sugar, lower problems with weight, lower insulin resistance, less inflammation, and again, healthier estrogen levels. So you're talking to a guy, we have uh, refried bean quesadillas every Wednesday night in our household. But I, I would say that the people I know who've struggled with autoimmune, that removing lectins tends to work for yeah. them. People have tried everything. And especially but... red beans. I find that most people do okay if they stick to lentils and garbanzo beans. But when you start to get into the pintos, the kidney beans, any of those red beans, or the harder skin beans, and also if you don't soak, obviously that can be a problem with the, with the garbanzos. But it is important. I mean, it's so important to listen to your body. And if you don't tolerate them, that's okay too. Then you can get flax seeds, which are rich in phytoestrogens and most people tolerate really well. And you can get them from lots of greens too. But flax seeds to me are a really healthful food one or two tablespoons a day. Ground is great, but you can also cook with them and they're still really beneficial for hormone balance and estrogen and those phytoestrogens. So you can skip the lectins and still get them. <laughs> so let's stay on food. And I don't know if you're going to be able to do this, but you know, what the hell, we're going to go for it. So we started with, we've got people in their, women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and then the 60s plus. If you could mm -hmm. take each age group, are there a couple foods in your opinion specific to each age group that are really great for them and i know it's hard to generalize but well, can we I give it a shot so like everyone yes. in their 20s they got they're about to go grocery shopping what should they load up on and then we'll take it to the next group in the 30s 40s 50s yes. 60s plus okay and we'll, we'll just assume we're accumulating these too in the shopping cart of so course. they stay good in their 20s they're still good in their 30s guys all right so 20s fish if you're willing to eat fish is so healthful. And I know we might have a lot of vegans and vegetarians, but if you will eat fish, great for your hormones, great for your hair, great for your skin, great for your mood. Fish oil or an algae substitute for fish oil is fine, but I don't think it's as good as fish. And then I'm going to cheat and do two. I'm going to say eggs and avocados. Again, eggs, if you can tolerate them, most people can tolerate them at least baked. But eggs, phenomenal for choline, for supporting healthful fertility. And then avocados, great for the fat, for healthful hormones, building blocks, phenomenal. Okay, 30s. I'm going to say 30s. I would lean into whole grains and steamed vegetables, lots of Buddha bowls, things like that. I think women in their 30s are often really busy, have little kids. If you get that nice Buddha bowl in, you're getting some good whole grains that help prevent PMS. They help keep your blood sugar steady. You're getting some kind of a legume or fish or poultry that is a really good energy. And you're getting all those really healthful vegetables. Drizzle some tahini in there. I'm a huge fan because you want to get really thinking about your building your bones because of those building blocks over the years. 40s. I'm going to say 40s are a great time for things like sweet potatoes and lots of greens. Sweet potatoes are great for your digestion, your elimination. They're easy to digest. Sometimes as we get into our 40s and 50s, 
grains become a little bit less, not easy to digest, but I just find that women in their 40s and 50s, and I say, you know, I don't feel as energetic when I eat grains, but sweet potatoes, phenomenal. And yeah, so I'm going to say greens and sweet potatoes, and but all the other stuff I mentioned still important. 50s. Let's see. Well, I'm in my 50s. So I'm going to say I'm really onto the fish these days. It's a quick source of protein. I find that I don't need to eat as much in my 50s as I did in my childbearing years. So I lean pretty heavily into fish a few times a week, greens, definitely try to keep those legumes in there. Yeah. And then 60s is... What would I lean into in 60s? I mean, I think kind of an extension of the 50s, but just making sure that you're eating enough. And I think eggs, anything heart healthy. And then for me, like fiber is so important as women get older, because as that estrogen tends to go down, constipation. So lots of leafy greens. Yeah, any fiber rich food. And then 50s and 60s, if you haven't already introduced flaxseed into your diet, flaxseed becomes just so important. What have I missed? Okay, I'll say a couple of things too. Even if you can tolerate alcohol in your 20s and 30s, by the time you start to get into your mid late 40s and 50s, even if you find that you'd fall asleep fine if you've had a drink or two, and I'm talking like, even if it's good, like Northern California organic cab, all the good resveratrol and everything, that alcohol is just one of the worst things for women's sleep and hormone balance. So I would say 86 the alcohol and switch into something like ginger switchel shots or something <laughs> like sparkling water with some cranberry cranberry splash or something like that. If you're going to drink alcohol, keep it to something really clean and light like a small amount of vodka in sparkling water. But and then, you know what? I'm going to just say a couple of things. Dark chocolate, great across your life cycles. It's a really healthy food. I don't consider dark chocolate a treat. I do consider it a food, especially if it's like 72% or more. Great for brain health, great for depression. Actually, we know women who eat a little bit of chocolate almost every day, less depression, healthier weight, better blood pressure, great cognitive function. And then coffee, interestingly, as women get into their 50s and 60s, one or so, not more than two cups of coffee a day, as long as it's not in the afternoon, as long as it's still in the morning, may actually be beneficial for cognitive function. So there you have it. Food Across the Lifespan. That's a I, book. I, it is a book. <laughs> Everyone has their shopping list. So we're going we're gonna to close there. Aviva, thank you so much. We love the book, Hormone Intelligence. Everyone go pick it up. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you, Jason. 